What is it about the unknown that fascinates us so much? Is it for the thrill of it all? Or do we seek proof of life after death? Whatever our reason may be, we find ourselves being drawn in by these places and the bone-chilling tales that they have to offer. Tortured souls cross boundaries to reach out with stories that they want to share with us. There are times we simply hear the echoes of a memory on loop. The question that remains is this, are you open-minded enough to handle it? Dive into the paranormal with DC O'Rourke, your personal guide, as we traverse the globe to dissect haunted places in each and every episode of Hauntingly Yours, a podcast for the paranormal, where the spirits are always waiting. Welcome back. I'm DC O'Rourke, your personal guide. Let's go ahead and dive right in because this is number seven of Hauntingly Yours. And today we are going to be taking an in-depth look at Beechworth Asylum located in Victoria, Australia. We're going to be looking at it inside and out, exploring the grim history of it because this place is said to be the most haunted place on the continent. Also, People have been saying for years that it's probably one of the top 10 most haunted places on earth. I know when I first ran across this place very recently, I read two sentences about it and I was hooked. Apparently all you needed were two signatures to be admitted into Beechworth Asylum. Just two signatures. To be discharged though, you needed eight signatures. I was floored by that. Why? Because it said to me, that this place was harder to get out of than it was to get into. It's insane. Eight signatures to get out. I mean, wow. I had to investigate this further. I mean, no doubt. I had to investigate. Boy, did I come up with some frightening content from my research. Some of the stuff that I'm going to be sharing with you actually will just blow your mind. The history of this place alone is haunting in itself. Like any good story, though, let let us, as always, start from the beginning. Beechworth Asylum, or Mayday Hills Mental Hospital, as it was called later on, originally opened its doors in October of 1867. 
This took place thanks to the efforts of lobbying from the Beechworth Municipal Council because the public jail in town was just, well, no longer suitable for patients. The asylum would end up being surrounded by 106 hectares of farmland, making the hospital completely self-sufficient. It had a piggery, a few orchards, stables, barn, kitchen, gardens, fields. Around the boundaries of the facility, a ha-ha wall was built. The, the wall consisted of a trench that had been dug out on one side. It was made vertical. This was then faced with stones or bricks. As for the other side, it was sloped or turfed. From within the facility, the patients would be able to look out and see a tall face that would show that they wouldn't be able to escape. If the outside world were to look in, however, they would see a wall that was low and suggested imprisonment. Eh, not exactly a possibility here. The building itself was situated at the top of a hill, and the doctors professed that a mix of the winds and high altitudes would blow the insanity from patients' minds. As far as admissions went, well, I already told you about how to get in. Just two signatures, right? That's all you needed. If you had a family member or even a, a close friend that thought you were insane, all they had to do was get two medical certificates from two different medical practitioners, and you were gone from their life. Just like that. Husbands were often known at this time to have their wives declared insane just to get rid of them. Other ways to be admitted included if you were mentally ill or a lunatic wandering around without proper care or treatment. You could be snatched up by the police and brought here before two justices that would condemn you. If there were any prisoners at the Crown that were thought to be lunatics, they could be removed from jail to the asylum by order of the chief secretary. Around 1915, patients would soon begin to voluntarily admit themselves to the asylum for a mutually agreed-upon period of time. I'll be sure to give you all a list of the many ways you could land yourself in here. It is truly unbelievable. Let's move on, though, shall we? Naturally, some of the methods for getting into the asylum, and not just this one, but others as well, were they were later amended by the Mental Health Act of 1959, which stated a person could be admitted upon the recommendation of a medical practitioner who had examined the person. As soon as humanly possible after the newly admitted person was in the building, the supervising physician of the hospital was to come examine them and either approve or deny their admission. No sooner patients were admitted, the most trusted men were put to work as farmhands, blacksmiths, carpenters, painters, kitchen hands, shoe cobblers, tailors even. The most trusted women were given jobs as launderers, knitters, seamstresses, and domestics. There was a gigantic vegetable garden that ran the length of the asylum and was tended by 25 patients on a full-time basis. The garden produced enough fruit and vegetables all year round. There was more than enough for the asylum, its staff, the Beechworth Jail, and the Beechworth Benevolent Asylum for Aged Care. Any surplus fruit and vegetables were transported to other hospitals in Melbourne. Adjacent to the garden was a farm, which supplied the asylum's meat and dairy needs. The place ran like a fine-tuned machine, 
It was completely self-sufficient. These workers would be overseen by a matron who kept a close eye on things. Well, one of the many tales that has come out of Beechworth over the years involves the third matron of the facility, a passionate woman by the name of Matron Sharp. She cared for her patients fiercely and was incredibly loyal to them. In her time at Beechworth, she introduced music therapy, pet therapy, and she even obtained furnishings for her female patients. Some argue as to whether or not she has ever really, truly left the place. As far as how life was within the walls of the asylum, unfortunately, we really don't know much. They weren't the best at keeping records back then, and even when they did, most were very generic, straightforward, to the point, or complete forgeries for the most part. The little we can gather is from various medical treatments, employee, employee training notes, oral history, and some public records from the jail and other asylums in the area. Now, I've dived into this heaping pile of misery and tragedy, and all I can say is I'm drowning in it. I'm still drowning in it, even as I'm sitting here reciting all of this information to you. I mean, there was just that much to go through. Beechworth Asylum held as many as 1,200 patients at any given point, and about 600 to 700 staff members. The, the patients came from all walks of life, too, and you had men, women, and children. There were murderers, rapists, thieves, patients with Down syndrome, schizophrenia, epilepsy, and far worse than that. Innocent people were also thrown in here. People who were homeless, people who didn't speak English, or people who even just found themselves on the wrong side of the law. <laughs> they ended up here. I touched on it briefly just a couple of minutes ago, but how about I read you guys a list of reasons why you could be admitted to the asylum, and I think then you'll get a much better idea of what I'm trying to get across here. And here we go. Hit by a wagon. Deserted by a husband. Imbecile. Doing housework on a Sunday. Uncontrolled appetite. Incest. Murder. Old age. Wearing red. Religious excitement. Having fits. Being barren. Extramarital affairs. Sunstroke. Unmarried mother. Talks to self. Prostitution. Stubbornness. Bloody flux. Also known as dysentery. Falling off a horse. Those are just a few of the many reasons why someone would be admitted into Beechworth Asylum, or any asylum of the day for that matter. And that's not even all of the reasons why. My. Times have changed, am I right? I remember when I was growing up, we'd joke about different family members and say, if we could get them admitted to the local crazy hospital, we'd get $50. Turns out that was an old wives' tale. I'll tell you what's not an old wives' tale, though. The forms of treatment that patients received in this facility. Up until the 1950s, no medicine was used at all whatsoever. 
patients were treated with restraints, shackles, electroshock therapy, teeth pulling, lobotomies with ice picks, or whatever had to be done to keep people in line. Talk about cruel and unusual punishment. Man, those were the times, though. A lot of illnesses simply weren't understood. Violence and torture were a common occurrence here. Misery was forever lingering in the air. By the time Beechworth closed her doors to the world in 1995, just over 9,000 patients had passed away within her walls. Most of them were buried in unmarked graves. This lasted until about 1980 when patients started receiving a proper burial with headstone. The spirits that still reside here are trapped, I feel like, just like they were in life and they want to get out. A paranormal investigator's job is not to just determine if a place is haunted. If they're able to also figure out why a spirit is here, they can also help them move on. And sometimes spirits are intelligent enough to acknowledge that. The question is, will they stay or will they go if they are offered the opportunity? It's really hard to say. I guess it depends on the personality and the intelligence of the entity that you have to come across. Who can all, who can truly offer peace to so many tortured souls though? I mean, I think it's an impossible task, but I digress. There are a few ghostly specters that are known to walk the corridors, the grounds, and even confine themselves to different rooms at Beechworth Asylum. The locals in the town of Beechworth have kept their legends alive over the years quite well. In one of the day rooms, the signature of a J. Kelly is scratched in a glass window. It would seem that J. Kelly was the infamous Ned Kelly's Uncle Jim. After burning down his sister-in-law's house, Jim was sentenced to 15 years hard labor by Sir Redmond Barry, despite no one being killed. Years later, Sir Redmond would be the one to, believe it or not, go on to put his nephew, Ned, to death. Legend has it that Jim, as part of his sentencing, was sent to Mayday Hills to help with construction at the hospital. It said that after his sentence was served, his mind was broken, and he lived out his day within the confines of the hospital until he passed away in 1903. He was laid to rest in the cemetery on the grounds in an unmarked grave. As for his spirit, well, let's just say it's a little restless, and it still inhabits the room he once lived in. Numerous reports have said that he's known for pacing up and down his room laughing like a madman, he can be heard banging on the walls of his cell and throwing objects around from time to time. Clearly, Mr. Kelly is displeased. Why doesn't someone just get to the bottom of it and ask the guy, Hey, what's your deal? As I mentioned earlier, there are those who argue as to whether or not the former matron, matron Sharp, has ever really left this building, her former place of employment. Throughout the years, there have been numerous sightings of a kind-hearted matron in the former hospital wings, which used to be Latrobe University's computer rooms. Matron Sharp is usually dressed in white and often gets spotted walking down the granite staircase where she turns and heads into the one of the many rooms. 
She's always on a mission, just as she was in life, forever looking after her patients. The woman showed such compassion toward her patients in life that it truly was uncharacteristic of the era. She will always be remembered for that. She will be remembered for those efforts to make life better at the asylum. One night in October, just a few years ago actually, a tour guide came in to prepare for a tour at the facility when she noticed a woman walking down a corridor of the asylum dressed as a matron in white. The woman was carrying what looked like a bouquet of fresh flowers. She thought it was one of the actresses prepping for the Halloween festivities being held in another part of the building. Maybe she had just shown up early. Bumping into one of her fellow guides, she inquired about the actress, and the guide was confused. To her knowledge, there was no one else but the two of them, and she wasn't aware of any actresses playing a matron either. By the time the poor guide who had seen the matron went back to investigate, she, of course, was nowhere to be found. It seems like that the beloved matron is still looking after her patients, and not even death can stop her. In the former kitchen, there seems to be another specter that hangs out. This is reportedly Tommy Kennedy, a former patient. As it would turn out, Tommy, he was a kitchen hand, but he was also what they called a dab hand. The particulars of that job were to transport diseased patients out of the hospital onto what everyone referred to as the meat wagon. I think I know why Tommy still lingers here. He was murdered in the kitchen, unfortunately. The culprit was never captured either. Today, people who visit this area claim to have their clothes tugged on and someone without a doubt pokes them in the ribs. The clanging of pots and pans are also heard along with the disembodied screams of someone in pain. Whoever it is, they are felt but never seen. Whether or not that's Tommy, I can't begin to say. He certainly is a likely suspect, though. Another commonly spotted figure is the ghost of a man wearing a green woolen jacket who wanders around the gardens of the property. Locals believe this to be the spirit of a former groundskeeper named Arthur who earned 10 shillings a week during his time at the asylum. When he passed away, the staff went to collect his belongings and discovered that inside his green woolen jacket was his entire life's savings that he had been accumulating while working there. Arthur... Well, he was a bit of a miser, I think. But why has he come back to work in death? Did he enjoy his job that much? Or is he maybe looking for his wages that he never got to spend? You tell me. You decide. No matter which way we turn down the many halls of this asylum, we still manage to come across the miserable earthbound souls who still linger here. They're caught between this life, this life and the next, and they're reaching out to us for an explanation. These are their stories just as much as they are ours. Today, the property, Beechworth Asylum, is owned by two businessmen who have since subdivided the buildings and leased them out to various arts and tourism businesses. Before they purchased the property back in 2013, it had actually been a hotel at one point, a conference center, a wedding chapel, and classroom spaces for the campus of La Trobe University. 
The only way to get into Beechworth Asylum is by taking a tour with the group who currently leases part of the property, the Asylum Ghost Tours. They also do overnight paranormal investigation as, as well. It's my understanding that there's also an escape room being run in a former section of the Asylum called Mayday Hills Escape Room. I honestly would love to do that. I think that would be a lot of fun. I've done escape room. Uh, one escape room in my time, and I enjoyed it. But doing an escape room in a haunted place, oh, yes, good stuff. Anywho, let's get back down to it. Any of these are a great way, though, to get to know the building, see it up close and personal. There, there are other businesses here on the property as well, but you won't get to experience the spirits in the same way. Over the years, as more and more people began coming into these spaces that once occupied the former asylum, weird things began to happen. People would see shadow people moving across the halls. They would hear the laughter of children. Disembodied voices have often been heard. Doors seemed to open and close on their own. Odd cold spots would appear in certain rooms. Certain people have claimed to have been pushed or pulled on, and others have said that they've been scratched by unseen forces. The list, I'm afraid, is endless, and quite frankly, I'm not surprised. Not one bit. There is certainly a mix of intelligent and residual hauntings going on in this place. No doubt about it. It all depends on what section of the asylum you find yourself in. There are those who are stuck here and willing to communicate. Then there are those who are simply reliving a certain event over and over again. For the right person, whether you're a paranormal investigator or just an enthusiast seeking answers, Beechworth Asylum is a treasure trove, and it will not disappoint. I think it's best if we look at what are considered to be the most active sections of the asylum. Paranormal hotspots, if you would like to go as far as to call them that. Paranormal investigators have unlocked many doors into the mysteries of this place, and the puzzle pieces are slowly coming together more and more. Our first stop will be at the Bull Pit. Built in the 1870s, this was used for overflow from the town jail, and it housed boys from the ages of 13 to 26 years old. Sometimes you would encounter boys as young as 6 and as old as 28. It all depended on their reason for admission. As for their mental status, honestly, they all had their problems. Some of them were admitted for being criminals, others had Down syndrome, autism, ADHD, epilepsy, you name it. A few boys may have had, they may have been disregarded, let's say, by their parents for being disobedient. I just can't believe that, but it, it really makes me sad. If you can think of a reason, no matter how obscure it seems, they were probably here because of it. When in doubt, just refer back to the list of reasons I gave you guys in the beginning. As many as 80 to 120 boys were packed into this ward at any given point. There were a lot of different personalities running around in there, and with that came a whole lot of tension. Too much testosterone, I'm guessing. 
from what I've gathered from my various readings, it it was almost like a prison system in there. There was a definite hierarchy. I really don't even think I can begin to imagine. By far, this is an extremely active location. The hauntings that take place are all considered intelligent. The spirits will interact with you. They can answer questions, knock on walls, doors, clap for you. They can even light up your different equipment pieces. No investigators have been able to capture a name of any spirits from this location as of yet. That doesn't mean no one hasn't tried, though. Visitors that come through this area are very effective. Some have claimed to have been overcome with random emotions like happiness or sadness that they just simply can't control. People literally leave with goosebumps on their arms and the hair standing up on the back of their necks. One evening, there was a group of four friends on a paranormal investigation. They were in the bullpen. They said that they had various pieces of equipment set up throughout the place, the MF meters, a laser grid, even an obelisk. For those who don't know, an obelisk is an electronic speech synthesis device which utters words depending on electromagnetic waves in the air by using an EMF meter, very similar to a, a spirit box. They were sitting in the middle of the room, though, asking questions to elicit responses on their obelisk when one of the friends asked, did any of you die here? Not even 30 seconds later, the obelisk started going off. One word showed up on the screen after the other. Murder. Death. Violence. Young. The friends all looked at one another, astonished, and just as they were about to ask another question, the door to the bullpit swung open and footsteps were heard running toward them. Everyone jumped up absolutely terrified as there was clearly no one in the room. As the footsteps drew closer and closer, the EMF meters nearby buzzed incessantly and lit up across the spectrum of colors. The four friends all felt like they were sick now, all at the same time. It was decided that they should probably move on to another part of the building. Safety first, after all. Several years ago, a family of three came through the asylum for a day. It was mom, dad, and their young son, Billy. They were being led through the bullpit by their tour guide and being told about the history of it. At the end of the guide's spiel, the mom noticed her son off in a corner of the room and he appeared to be talking to himself. She wanted to know if everything was alright, much like any mom would, I would imagine. Billy said that he was fine, that he was just having a chat with his new friend James. Mom clearly didn't see anyone there, but Billy went on to tell her that James was 10 years old and had been living at the facility for quite some time. He was very lonely and just wanted to play. Mom had taught Billy growing up to never talk to strangers. Ask yourself, though, does that same rule apply to ghosts? Next up, we have the 80s kitchen. Why is it called the 80s kitchen, you may wonder? Well, that's because... That's when it was built. No other reason for it, I'm afraid. It's had a lot of modern updates over the years. Steel benches and sinks were put in along with red bricks in the main dining room. It's, it's quite beautiful. This was the main kitchen that made all the meals for the staff and patients. Tommy Kennedy could very well be lurking in this room, but paranormal investigators say that they have encountered the spirit of someone else, and on more than one occasion. The spirit has addressed himself as Benjamin, and he's eight years old. 
He's linked to the bullpen, but he won't say how. He apparently used to be trapped in there, but he escaped and made his way to the kitchen where he prefers to stay. He feels safe there. The corner of the room where he's often felt is affectionately named Benjamin's Corner in his honor. Don't be fooled by any childish innocence that he made his display, though. Oh, he is not a kind spirit. Not at all. He's vile, manipulative, and while he loves to talk with people, he wouldn't think twice about viciously attacking you. Theo, a paranormal investigator, broke away from his team one evening to go exploring on his own with his night vision camera. He wandered into the 80s kitchen, which was completely empty and completely dark. The team had one security camera set up in a far corner of the room. Theo panned around in a circle, slowly looking at everything in the darkness. All the while, he searched for any signs of life other than his own. Moving further along, he sensed something was amiss. The temperature was changing around him. He could feel it. It was just very sudden, and it was getting very hot. Too hot. The thing was, it was only in this one particular spot. Camera at the ready, he held onto it tight and waited to see what would happen next. A voice called out to him from behind. Hello? The voice was disembodied, sounding and clearly belonged to a young male. Theo froze right there on the spot. He didn't turn around. Who, who's there? He managed to ask. Benjamin, it said. Leave now. Then someone ran up behind him and shoved him violently. He fell to the floor and dropped his camera. As he regained his composure, he snatched it back up, swung it around the room, looking for anyone who might be there with him. Just as he was about to put the camera away, he saw something that took his breath away. Just inside the galley of the kitchen, he could clearly see what looked like the figure of a young child kneeling on the floor. No sooner he saw it, it vanished and banged into everything within sight as an attempt to scare him off. Did Theo give in? He didn't, actually. He continued the investigation. As for Benjamin, it would seem that he retreated to the darkness to harness more energy. He had just put on quite the show and... I guess it had taken quite a bit out of him. Well, let's move right along. Let's head on over and talk about the male olivine criminally insane ward. Need I say more? This is where the worst of the worst were held. All of your truly insane men were held here in this location. The windows had shutters, which were closed most of the time. Darkness, believe it or not, was used as a form of treatment for the patients as it was thought to keep them calm. This location is said to be incredibly active, according to both guests and staff. Lots of odd noises are heard, and people constantly feel like they're being followed. One earthbound entity has been making himself known in this location for quite some time. The staff has come to affectionately call him Big Ted. The nickname comes from the fact that many people have encountered the shadow of a man which likes to stand in the doorway of a particular cell in this ward, and he's so large he fills up the entire doorway. People say he looks like he's at least nine feet tall, a monstrous figure that's quite intimidating. He dominates the cell he's often seen in, so we can only assume it's his. In life, Ted was not a very nice man. 
There's a tale about him going to see his barber one day in Melbourne for a simple haircut. At the end, the barber grabbed a mirror to show him, show him the final product. Ted hated it. He was not happy with his new hairstyle at all whatsoever. He reached over for the nearest stray razor, turned and slit the barber's throat from ear to ear. The dastardly deed landed him a one-way ticket to Beachwood Asylum, and unfortunately for him, he never got the chance to leave. Big Ted likes to watch tour groups as they enter his ward. If he's intrigued enough, he will sometimes come out and follow them around until they decide to leave his area. You can feel his presence the entire time. You feel unwanted. In the end, you just can't help but leave. Just seven summers ago, a tour guide brought a group in late one evening. It, right here in this very unit, the criminally insane ward. The group was all female students from the local La Trobe University, and they were hoping to experience Beachworth Asylum up close and personal for the first time, maybe get themselves a good scare. The tour guide, who was dressed all in red with a black shawl, gathered them around in the male infirmary and began to tell them about the history of the place. In the middle of her spiel, though, she noticed something. It was just out the corner of her eye on the far left of the room. A shadowy figure of a person had emerged from within the walls and now appeared to be standing in the corner. The guide looked over to confirm what her eyes were seeing, and sure enough, there was a man standing there. He had stringy black hair and was dressed in all black from head to toe. He was incredibly tall. His arms were crossed and his countenance, eh, let's just say it wasn't a pleasant one. The tour guide, an older woman who had seen her fair share of ghosts, got the distinct feeling that the man was displeased with them being there. She instructed the group not to be alarmed and informed them of what exactly was taking place behind them. The temperature in the room increased increased to the point where they were all starting to get humid. At that point, the tour guide told them it was probably best if they moved on to another section of the building. Someone obviously did not want them there. Was it Big Ted, or was it one of the many other criminally insane spirits who are stuck wandering around this ward for the rest of eternity? You decide. Another dark and depressing section of the hospital to explore is the cellar. The cellar was used as a place to hold prisoners from the Beechworth jail each night when they had come up to do work on the hospital. So basically what was going on here, each morning they'd march these men up the hill, they get them to do construction, and then at night they put them down in the cellar and keep them there rather than march them back down to the hill. Instead, they just take them back down the very next day. And this probably seems like it was a little crazy, but in those days, using prisoners to do construction on government buildings was pretty cheap and pretty easy, and that's all that really mattered. You march these men up the hill, force them to work, and then hold them in the cellar for the night, throw them a few scraps, you know, left over from dinner, force them to fight over it like rabid dogs. I can only imagine that the tension in this room had to be particularly scary because, one, it's underground, two, it's not that big, three, you had... A a bunch of prisoners that were probably a good mix of murderers, rapists, thieves. I mean, 
And that's not even including all the various personalities. But I, I digress. I digress. Construction of the hospital actually took four years, and prisoners from the beach were jail were used throughout the entirety of it. Men suffered down here at night. They were hot. They were hungry. They were miserable. It's said that this location is so active to the point where you can feel the air change the moment you enter the place. People say they have people reach out for them, touch them, poke them. Others say that they smell foul odors reminiscent of human feces. Hands will sometimes reach out and grab you around the ankles and try to pull you down on the floor. Sometimes people get uncomfortable down here, but when they try to leave, someone or something decides to attack them. They end up being nearly scratched to death. Different tour guides and paranormal investigators over the years have used spirit boxes down here, a device that scans radio frequencies and offers spirits the chance to manipulate them in order to speak. They have often received negative messages. They've been told to fuck off, get out, leave, go to hell, and much, much worse. It's one of those things you get used to when you do this kind of thing. I can tell you from experience, it, it happens. Take it for what it is. Move on. The spirits down here in this cellar are angry, and there's no change in that. Not now, not ever. Without doubt, the scariest encounter that took place down here involved a young man who was taking a ghost tour. He and his dad were down in the cellar with their tour guide, who was talking to the rest of the group. The young man found himself very chilly. All of a sudden, he was freezing. Giving in to the overall need for warmth, he told his dad that he was going to step outside for some air. As he broke away from the group, he felt a presence follow after him. Ever so slowly, he made his way for the staircase, and no sooner he arrived at the foot of it, someone shoved him hard and dug their nails across his back. Straight up Wolverine-style guys. He took off running, and when he made it outside, he could feel his back stinging very badly. Dad came running after him to see if everything was all right, and he found his son walking around out in the open with no shirt on. It was soon discovered that the poor kid's back had been clawed on both sides diagonally. Someone had torn him to shreds, and he had the marks to prove it. The spirits that still reside in the old cellar are obviously very violent. They're not happy about being earthbound and take that anger out on the living. As a result, more than likely it's hard for them to understand. Either way, it's nothing compared to our next location. By far the most active location in the asylum is the Grevillea wing. This is where all of your lobotomies and electroshock therapies would have happened. Do I need to describe a lobotomy in detail? On second thought, you know what, I'll, I'll just sum it up for you. Basically, a patient would be restrained in their bed and given electroshock therapy to render them unconscious. Once they were stable, the attending physician would take an ice pick, yes, an ice pick, and ram it into the top of the eye until it hit the pre- frontal cortex connections of the brain. The connections would end up being severed, which would essentially render the patient a vegetable and much easier to maintain. Check out the Facebook page after you have a listen to this episode, by the way. I'll post a picture of a lobotomy 
that actually took place in the asylum. Lobotomies eventually fell out of favor in the 1950s with the arrival of psychiatric drugs, and soon after they were banned altogether for their barbarity and poor test results. Oh yeah, the electroshock therapy. Duh, how could I forget that? We should talk about that because the staff here, they often did an entire room all at once. Yeah, I'm talking 20 to 30 beds at a time, everybody going through the same thing. It all took place right here in this room. Truly, it is the stuff nightmares are made of. Completely and totally crazy. This wing would have served as the male infirmary as well as a mental disability ward in later years. The wing also contains an infectious disease room, and it's often said that out of the 9,000 deaths at this facility, 3,000 of them happen right here in Gravilia. Wow, that's all I can say. Granted, those statistics were over the course of 128 years, but yikes, all the same. That's just sad. No wonder this section of the hospital is so haunted. Souls are without a doubt trapped here, just like they were in life. They deserve the chance to cross over just like any of us after we shed our mortal coils. When visitors find themselves in this wing, they can sense the negative energy that this room puts off. I don't care who you are, empath or no empath, the negativity in here is supposed to be unreal. Lots of people are overwhelmed with feelings of anger. It permeates from the walls like an alcoholic beverage on tap. Although, <laughs> I'm sure this is one drink that no one wants to take a sip from. Lots of reports have been coming out of this area for years. People, both visitors and staff alike, have encountered shadow people. They've seen doors slam shut by themselves. Hushed footsteps seem to walk right past them. They even say that invisible forces will pull your hair, grab at your ankles. Oh, oh my friends, where, where do we begin? The stories are just too plentiful. A young woman on a tour once in the evening took a risk and broke away from the rest of her group. She found herself down a corridor just outside the Gravelia wing taking photographs with her cell phone. From what she had learned on previous ghost tours, using burst mode was a great way to capture spirits on film. All you needed to do was just hold down the home button to snap your photos and keep it there for a few seconds without even noticing you will have taken a large group of consecutive photos. Well, this young woman did just that. She was a, a healthy skeptic, I guess you could say, when it came to the supernatural, but she was always looking for proof. Any confirmation to show her that there was indeed life after death. She left the hall in a hurry and ran back to join her group in Gravilia. As they were walking around the wing in the dark, she went over those photos she had just taken in the hallway. There was nothing at first. Then, little by little, a very tall man appeared from around a corner just at the end of the hallway. He was completely shrouded by darkness. With each photo that she passed through, her nerves pulsated at an alarming rate and the shadowy man drew closer. Finally, she got to the last photo and noticed he had only been standing just a couple of feet away. She hadn't even noticed. Her jaw dropped as she allowed the image of him to sink in. He looked to be an older man. His eyes were glossed over and he had a crooked smile on his face. You could barely see anything else about him. Only his face appeared to be visible. And to the photographer, that was creepy enough. 
Back when Latrobe University owned the facility, two male friends got permission to tour the building. By the end of their adventure, they had wandered into the Gravilia wing. Armed with flashlights, they walked around the entire area and talking amongst themselves. All was quiet, other than the occasional odd noise or the echoes from their own voices. At one point, the friends were walking along when they stopped dead in their tracks, but it was quite sudden. They heard keys jingling from over by the door. No one else was supposed to be in the building. Their hearts began to pound like angry gorillas within their chests. Both of the friends put their backs against the wall, unsure of what was going to happen next. The keys continued to jingle until the door to Gravelia opened and the footsteps were heard. The footsteps sounded as if they were determined. They walked at an irregular pace. The two friends waited patiently, thinking it was more than likely just security doing a patrol, but they'd wait to find out. The footsteps came all the way to their exact spot and then walked right past them. No one was there. The friends were panicking now. One of them took out his cell phone and he dialed security. He asked the gentleman working dispatch, Did you guys have anyone on patrol just come, you know, do a sweep of the asylum? The answer he received? No, why do you ask? They ended up disconnecting the call and both friends left the wing of that building as fast as they could go. <laughs> Forget that, guys. I probably would have been out of there, too. <laughs> I, I have been in too many situations like that in my life where I've been in the middle of an investigation and I hear something and, you know, there's no mistaking it in my mind. But despite me, I guess, cutting tail and running, I seem to regain my composure and then turn around to come back for more. It's just that that temporary, oh, oh, wow, this is actually happening kind of feeling. The question that remains, though, my friends, is Beechworth Asylum haunted? You better believe it is. In the 128 years that the facility was open, it saw roughly 9,000 deaths within its walls. A good chunk of patients are still buried on the property in unmarked graves. The patients here were subjected to the horrendous and barbaric treatments of the time. Most died completely and utterly alone. I gave you the facts. I gave you the statistics. You be the judge. Is this place haunted? The stories have been laid at your feet for your approval. Before I sign off, there's one last story I'd like to share. It's not a ghost story. It's not even a snippet of history. It's more of an anecdote that comes directly from a former psychiatric nurse at the hospital. I feel like it brings all of this into perspective to a degree. His story was one of an elderly patient that has been told time and time again. He recounted it once upon a time to ABC Goldburn Moray's radio show. It was before my time, and the incident involved a lady in one of the long-stay wards who had dementia and a history of drinking too much alcohol. On this particular day, she was unwell and had flu-like symptoms, so she was put on antibiotics in the afternoon. She became agitated, and I believe she was given some Valium to help her sleep, so she went off to bed, and at approximately midnight, she got out of bed and walked to the nurse's station. Previously, she had a very unusual gait and very little in the way of verbal skills. But when she walked into the nurse's station and asked them what had happened to her and why she was in the hospital, because she was perfectly normal, 
they were rather confused by this. Well, her gait was back to normal and she had a perfectly normal way of speaking. You can imagine the nurses were pretty amazed at the transformation. The former nurse said, despite the late hour, the nurses called the woman's daughter who got in her car and drove from Lavington to the asylum for a chance to talk to her mother. It was the first personal conversation she had had with her for many, many years, and they spent the entire night talking. The nurses told me they were both in tears, just talking about old memories and that sort of thing. By early afternoon the next day, whatever happened to this lady passed and she was not able to talk anymore. The daughter said she was grateful she had been called and had this opportunity to chat with her mother again. As sweet as that story is, not too many patients had opportunities like that, I'm afraid. To me, it's a firm reminder to cherish life each and every single day that we are on this earth. Nothing is trivial. Make the most out of it. I cannot stress that enough. Keep in touch with your family, your friends. No one deserves to die alone. We all, we're all put on this earth for a reason and each of us should be remembered. Even those who can't move on. Even though they've left us behind. The next time you're in Victoria, Australia, take a trip to Beechworth Asylum. You will certainly find no shortage of things to do from taking a ghost tour, doing an escape room, walking through the Heritage Gardens, grabbing a bite to eat at the George Curford, uh, going on a history tour, even visiting the gift shop there. Get to know the place for what it actually is, not what the rumors say. More importantly, keep a watchful eye out as you never know who might be tagging along with you. Emily Dickinson once wrote, Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves and immortality. My name is DC O'Rourke. If you enjoyed this episode, do me a favor. Leave us a like on our Facebook page. Follow us on Instagram. Subscribe. And most importantly, review. Spread the word. Come on back for more. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Until next time. I am and will remain, much like the spirits, hauntingly yours.